0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are ready to study the word and we're in fellowship And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace, for your goodness to us, and the fact that you are in control. You oversee human history. You give us freedom within that control And yet when things look out of control, when there appears to be chaos surrounding us, we know that there is a plan and a purpose, and we can relax. We know what our marching orders are, and we know what your plan for our lives is. And so we can trust you and focus on doing that which we're expected to do in Scripture so that we can be a witness to the world around us, witnessing the angelic conflict, and that we can be used by you, uh, especially in communicating the gospel to those who need to hear it. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to, an ever-present source of strength in the promises that we have. And, Father, we look into the scriptures to learn how to think, learn how to understand your plan and purposes, and so we're thankful for that. Now, as we study your word, we pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us with the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and last time we started with the, with Peter's, uh, second sermon. The first sermon was on the day of Pentecost. This is probably within a week or two of the first sermon, which is recorded in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, and it is occasioned by the healing of the a lame man who is taken up has taken up his regular position outside of the Nicanor Gate, which was called a beautiful gate, and the gate beautiful in the scriptures. And so it is the middle gate of those I have the three gates I have circled on the diagram up on the screen, and it is located in this area here, the entryway from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women uh, at the uh, at the temple and following the healing when peter and john came out then they would they, they gathered people together underneath the uh, uh covering here you have these uh columns known as solomon's porch not it just named for him that it wasn't there when solomon was there what's interesting about this this whole message starts actually in verse Uh, Verse 12 goes down to verse 26, so it's not that long, but if you read through it, it is so loaded with references, vocabulary, allusions to the Old Testament that you come away, if you really study this, you realize you cannot understand the New Testament if you don't have a a grasp of the old, Old Testament, that every almost every phrase Peter uses is loaded with baggage from the Old Testament. And it's just so sad that uh, people, most Christians today, just don't spend time in the Old Testament. And sometimes we're a little isolated and insulated in terms of our uh, uh, framework, our friends and those around us and those we know, because it's not so much true for uh, our church or some of the other churches similar to us, but in so many churches, they just all they do is they spend all their time in the New Testament, and they never ever go to the Old Testament, or they treat Old Testament uh, episodes and individuals as just nice stories, and they just they'll tell the story about Moses and and uh, the calling of Moses and the and the uh, uh, burning bush or Passover and the Exodus or They'll look at Joshua and Jericho or they look at uh, David and Goliath and these are, get taught as just these isolated stories. And they pull out a few good spiritual truths that are there, but these aren't isolated stories. That all the events in scripture that are described from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation are all designed and chosen and selected by God and revealed through God the Holy Spirit and scripturated through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through the apostles and prophets, to write these things down so that of all the billions and billions and billions of events that took place in history between the creation of Adam and the end of the first century, the Holy Spirit chose just these events for a purpose and that it is these events that represent... The key doctrines of Scripture, the things that God wants us to know so that we can understand who He is, what His plan is, and how how it works. And it all hangs together. It all intersects so that you can't study one part of Scripture without saying something about other parts of Scripture. And when you get into the New Testament, you really cannot fully understand things that are going on in the New Testament if you don't have that Old Testament frame of reference. That doesn't mean that you can't sit down and read the story of Jesus' birth and the announcement of Jesus and the the so-called Christmas story and not understand the gospel or its significance. But it's a shallow understanding. It's a simple understanding. It doesn't have all of the other facets to it. And once you get into the Old Testament and we read all of those Old Testament passages and prophecies and promises, then we realize what a remarkable thing has transpired and how uh the events related to Jesus' life weren't accidental. Jesus wasn't somebody who just sort of popped up in history as uh as liberal theology would express it, and somehow people thought, well, he was really special, and so we'll assign deity to him. That's the liberal view of Jesus. He isn't the eternal second person of the Trinity. And and when we realized that there was a plan and a purpose that was meticulously uh, orchestrated and uh, designed so that it would end up being a certain way. It's just phenomenal to look at that whole, uh, kaleidoscope of God's plan and see how all these pieces fit together so perfectly. And, and Peter pulls a lot of that together in this, in this message. As I've gone through this, I thought, I could spend a year going through this and go, taking each phrase or clause. I'm not going to do it. Uh, so I heard somebody back there go, uh, no, I'm not going to go through it uh, that detail, but I could. It, it's just amazing. And it's, it's, uh, as a pastor and as a student of the word to take the time to be able to do that, uh, is, it's just remarkable the things that you can, uh, that you can learn. Now, when Peter had, John have healed this lame man, as I pointed out in the previous lessons, that's not just something that happens because they're, you know, walking up to the, Front door of the temple, and they see this guy there, and they think, "Oh, wouldn't this be a good idea? We'll just, we'll just heal him right here." There is a significance to this. Healing was a sign, a, a miraculous sign that was predicted numerous times in the Old Testament to be an indication of the presence of the Messiah and the presence of the future kingdom that God promised. And so, the healing miracles of Jesus. Were to give credibility to his claims to be the Messiah, to show that yes, the Messiah was there, and that the the healing that was prophesied about the kingdom uh, was was present in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, the message that Peter and John are still proclaiming relates to the kingdom, and that even now, even though he's been crucified, they're offering the kingdom. To Israel. And so the, this healing miracle is another one of this whole series of, of uh, healing miracles to proclaim the presence, the opportunity for the kingdom to come. And Peter starts off, I read one Jewish commentator on this and he said, Peter begins this sermon in such a Jewish way. He, he starts off and he says, And just, it's sort of a deadpan tone this guy writes. He says, Why are you all so surprised at this? Because of all the things that have happened, they've already had the day of Pentecost in the last two weeks. Just six weeks before that, they had Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Before that, they had all the miracles Jesus performed. And now Peter and John heal this lame man, and everybody's just standing there with their mouth open, just in wonderment and amazement that this has happened. They just can't believe it. And, and Peter's like, why don't you all believe this? This kind of thing has almost been going on daily. And their hardness of heart to recognize what's going on is what Peter is really pointing out here. And so he begins in verse 12 by saying... Um, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? In other words, why are you so surprised about all this? It's been going on every day. What's wrong? Why are you looking so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, our own spirituality, we made this man walk? And then he says, men of Israel, he's addressing the men, the males. And there's a reason for that uh, in terms of the practice of the Jews in the, uh, in the temple. It's the, we're told in the first verse of the chapter that it was the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And in the, uh, in, in the practice of first or second temple Judaism, the day was divided into three prayer times. This was developed after the destruction of the first temple in 586. They organized the day in terms of these th- three prayer periods. And the first was uh, the morning uh, prayer time, Shacharit. The afternoon prayer time, which this would be, was mincha, which is the word for offering. And then the evening prayer time was uh, ma'ariv. Ariv is the Hebrew word for Arab, uh, the word for evening. And so this is the ninth hour, the hour of prayer that they go up. And uh, uh, this is the center time. And so the men would have just gathered in the temple, and they would have just gone through their their, uh, uh, prayer book, the Amidah, which is in the the, the central section of the Mincha prayer service, and this particular prayer reads, Praised be you, Adonai, our God and God of our fathers, God of Avraham, God of Yitzhak, God of Yaakov. Now, how does Peter begin this message? The God of... Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. This is what they were just praying. So, there's a, uh, he's, he's telling them that the prayer that you just prayed to the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov is the God of our fathers, and this is his plan. And he glorified, then he says he glorified his servant, uh, Jesus. And last time, I spent time talking about uh, what this means that this is loaded language to refer to Jesus as His servant, and if we look at the last statement in his in this uh, sermon in verse 26, Peter says to you first, and he's talking to these Jewish audience to you first, God, having raised up what His servant Jesus, so he brackets his message with a reference to the servant Jesus at the beginning and the servant Jesus at the end. And he says, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, I want you to keep that phrase in mind. He's saying Jesus was sent to turn them from their iniquities. Now, last time when, we, when I closed... I took the opportunity to go back and show you why this phrase of the servant was so important and so significant, and we went to uh, Isaiah. Isaiah is really, can be divided into two sections, the first 39 chapters and then chapters 40 to 66. Liberals try to come along and say, well, there's really two different Isaiahs. There's the mean, judgmental Isaiah, who's announcing the coming of the uh, Babylonians to uh, bring judgment on Israel, and then there's the kind, loving uh, Isaiah, and this is just absurd. I mean, people are different uh, all all the time, and you have a different message, you have a different tone and a different approach. So it's it's very clear from other aspects of, of Isaiah that there's no uh, there's no Deutero-Isaiah, some even try to say there's a third Isaiah, but there's only only one Isaiah, but he has two different messages. The first part's addressed to judgment, and the second is God's grace in providing a deliverer from judgment, one who will permanently provide uh, deliverance. And so I started with Isaiah 40 and just hit some of the high points, some of the verses like Isaiah 42.1, 49.6 and 7, uh, 52.13, and ended by going through Isaiah 53, which is known by most Christians at least and uh, many in the Jewish community who have become Christians because when you read through Isaiah 53 it is almost impossible to escape recognizing that this is talking about what Christians have been saying Jesus did all along. And within the Jewish community, the reading and interpretation of Isaiah, along with Daniel and some of the other prophets, is is not encouraged at all. It's discouraged because the questions uh, are a little too close to home. And so I ended with the uh, 11th verse of Isaiah 53, which is talking about my righteous servant. And if you note in uh, <clears throat> Acts chapter 3, verse 14, which in, Peter, in Peter's message he says and, and uh, confronts his Jewish audience by saying, you denied the Holy One and the Just or the Righteous One. So here he combines the title of servant with righteous and Isaiah says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant. See, God is speaking here about his servant. He says, by by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. And how does he do that? That's what comes out in, that, in the next clause. For he, that is the righteous servant, shall bear their iniquities. And the Hebrew word there for justify... Is the word Sadak or Sadiq? Sedakah is the word for righteousness itself. Sadak is the verb uh, to make righteous. And here it's in the Hifil stem in Hebrew. Hebrew takes a verb and they have different, uh, what they call stems. And, and you have uh, the, the Hifil, which is the causative stem. So you can take a verb that might mean one thing. In a cow stem, which is the most common stem, and then you put it in the hiphil, and it becomes causative to make something happen or to cause it to happen. So here it would be to cause to be righteous or to cause to be just. So by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall cause many to become righteous or be made or declared righteous. How? By bearing or carrying their iniquities. Peter tells us that Christ carried our sins in his own body on the cross. And so the focus of Isaiah 53 is on the role of the servant in providing justification for sin as a substitute for sin. He is the one who bears that sin. Now, then we come to uh, Acts chapter... Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, Peter says about the, uh, he's talked about the servant. Well, before we get into verse 14, let me look at something else. In 13, he says that uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he says, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he he was determined to let him go. So he's referring at this point to the event that occurs and is described in Matthew 27, 16. I want to look at that for just a minute uh, so you can turn there, keep your place here in Acts 3. But I, I want to address the fact that he says, makes these direct statements in verse 13 and 14 and 15. He says in verse 13, you delivered up and denied, In verse 14 he says you denied the Holy One. In verse 15 you killed the Prince of Life. Now there are those in the history of Christianity who have taken passages like this and have very wrongly used them to blame the Jews for the crucifixion calling them Christ killers. And that's an argument that is at the root of much uh, of what is known as Christian anti-Semitism. But the Bible doesn't put all the blame on the Jews. In fact, in Acts 4.27, in just the next chapter, after what happens after this message and because of the positive response when 5,000 are saved, uh, Peter and uh, John are taken into custody by the Sanhedrin, and then they're interrogated and then prohibited from preaching the gospel. Finally, they're released. They go back to... Uh, the other believers, and they pray. And when they pray in uh, verses 23 down through, the, down through 31 in Acts chapter 4, part of that prayer includes verse 27, where as in their prayer to God, they say, they pray for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, and Pontius Pilate, so it's the governing authority of the Jews and the governing authority of Rome, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now, that pretty much includes everybody. Okay, I don't think that in that environment at that time, if you weren't a Jew and you weren't a Gentile, well, you're not a human being. And if you're not under the authority of Rome or the authority of Herod, then you weren't there you were in some other part of the world uh, that really wasn't very well populated. So it's very clear that they understood that the responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus belonged to everybody, the entire human race. It's not just the fault of the Jews. It is not even the, just the fault of the of the Romans. Everybody's complicit. Every human being uh, is complicit in this. So... Uh, Peter says, you were the ones who the first thing they did, you delivered up and you denied Jesus. They turned their back on Jesus is the idea that's uh, presented here. Uh, they uh, delivered him over. That word uh, paradidomi can also mean to betray. They delivered him over to Pilate, to the Roman government. And then they denied him in the presence of Pilate. So let's turn over to Matthew, uh, Matthew 27. Verse 16, now what has happened is that when uh, Jesus was arrested, the first thing that happens is that Pilate interviewed him. Pilate not, is not approaching this, though, from a purely neutral vantage point. What happened with uh, to Pilate before he began to interview Jesus? Well, the scripture tells us that his wife had a bad dream the night before and warned him that if he uh was responsible for the death of this man that that things would be uh pretty bad. So he's been warned by his wife, and so he's taken a little time to uh interrogate Jesus and to find out what he's um, what he's talking about, what what he's claiming, and um he decided he's going to give the people an option. And the option is going to be—he really thinks that it's just the Jewish leaders, and that the people will choose Jesus because Jesus is 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 not a bad person, not like Barabbas. Barabbas is a wanted uh, criminal. He's a murderer. Uh, he was a public enemy number one, and so he's going to give the people an option, thinking, "Oh, they'll 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 choose uh, to uh, let." Christ live and to uh, execute Barabbas. So in verse 15 we read in terms of the background at the feast, that is at Passover, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. So he would give them an option to let one go free. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called uh, Barabbas. And in other passages he is identified as Uh, as a criminal and as a murderer. Uh, Therefore, we read in verse 17, When they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, that is to the people, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew, now verse 18 is giving us insight into Pilate's thinking. He knew that uh, they had handed him over because of envy, and so he's thinking there's going to be a way out for him. So we see Pilate trying to get an easy way out by giving them an option, but he's misread the situation. He's misread the people. He's misread how they've been stirred up by their religious leaders. And so in verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's a Bemis seat actually in the Greek, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So he's warned that um, this is a, a dangerous situation. Now the chief priest, verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so when the governor asked them which they will choose, they cry out, Barabbas. And then he just can't believe this. And so he... Then gives them a second chance. He said, What shall I do with the one who's called the Christ? And they said to him, Now it's translated, let him be crucified, but it's probably more idiomatic to just reduce it to crucify. It. It's, even though it is a third person imperative, the, it's just one word in the Greek. So they weren't, the crowd's not uttering a full sentence. They're just saying one word. Uh, comes across in foreign English, but basically be crucified, crucify. And so Pilate recognized that he could not win this argument, and so he went back in and he washes his hands to wash the blood off as a symbol that he is innocent of the blood, uh, that is, the death of this just person. So he claims that this absolves him, of any guilt. And the people answer and say, his blood be on us and on our children. There's another verse that is famously used to justify anti-Semitism. And as we see from the passage I just showed you in Acts 4, uh, that might have been what they said in the emotion of the moment, but it is not a justification for hostility to Jews or Israel uh, since. And so Barabbas is released. So that's what Peter's referring to here. Remember, the, the group that's before him is the same group that was in that crowd just about uh, 50 or 60 days before. And so he is, when he says that you did this, that's literal. He's not talking to their children, grandchildren, or subsequent generations. He's talking about to the people who were actually in that crowd. So he says, you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. And so Peter here gives us insight that you don't find in the Gospels that, that Pilate was determined and trying to let Jesus go, that he had in, made a decision to release Jesus, but he had to give it a legal cover, and the legal cover didn't work, so he ended up having to uh, follow through and crucify Jesus. And then the next thing that Peter uh, accuses the crowd of, he says, but you denied the Holy One and the just. Now, this is another really interesting and powerful statement. There are people who claim, of course, that Jesus never claimed to be God. Of course, the famous group that's out there today or the Jesus Seminar from the 90s who would meet in various uh, places, uh, nice hotels or whatever, and get together. And they would color code the Bible with about five or six color codes. And they would decide what Jesus never said, what he probably never said, what he very likely did not say but could have, what he might have said and what he definitely said. And most of what he said was not, they did not believe Jesus ever, ever said. Now, since they weren't there, I don't know how they came up with this. It has nothing to do with any sort of objective uh, literary criteria whatsoever. In fact, that whole kind of methodology uh, which came up, it, it originated back in the uh, 19th century, and, and it was applied not just to the Bible, but it was applied to other ancient works, and then they realized that it just didn't work, and so it's been debunked in every area except b- biblical studies. And uh, anybody who's uh, conservative recognizes that that's uh, never uh, had any uh, truth to it. But if if you don't want to accept the Bible, then you're not going to want to uh, credit it with being what it claims to be. So within liberal circles, they, they who cares what the evidence says? We've got to stick with whatever theories we have, otherwise we're... We're stuck with accepting the Bible as it is. And so we see here a claim, or a statement rather, by Peter that is quite profound. Here is an Orthodox Jew, to use modern terminology. Here is a devout, observant Jew, for that is exactly what Peter is. And as a devout, observant Jew in the first century, he is firmly, firmly against any kind of idolatry because as he would have been taught by the Pharisees at that time, that it was idolatry that led to the destruction of the first temple that led to God removing the people from the land, uh, taking out first the northern kingdom in 722 and then the southern kingdom in 586 and that the sin of sins that the Jewish people committed to anger God, to bring God's wrath against them, and to remove them from the land was idolatry. So above and beyond anything else that was going on within the Pharisaic interpretation of the Old Testament was that whatever we do, however we mess up, the one thing we can't do is to worship another god. And so they were already beginning to uh, harden and to petrify into a unitarian, rigid unitarian monotheism. This is why they got so upset when Jesus claimed to be God. They they had rejected any indications from the Old Testament that there was a plurality in the Godhead. And this is seen a number of different ways in the Old Testament. One, a simple one is just the name Elohim. And even though you look at modern grammars and, and dictionaries, they'll say the I am is a plural of majesty. But it's a, it's a plural. And there are other places where, for example, just reading the very first chapter in the book of Genesis, you read God saying, let us. Now, if it's a, only a plural of majesty, you would have a singular verb, a singular pronoun there. But you don't have a singular pronoun in in the Hebrew. You have a plural pronoun. God isn't saying, let me make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. Now, uh, in Jewish commentators today will try to say that he's he, he God is including the angels in the us. But see, nothing ever said. There's nothing ever said in the in the Torah or anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures that the angels were created in the image and likeness of God. Only the human race is created in the image and likeness of God. And so you can't try to make the us include angels without just doing tremendous damage to the interpretation of the Old Testament. And so God says, let us make man in, and then he did it again. Either God has really bad grammar Or he's making a point when he says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Three times he uses a first person plural there. So that's one way of looking at... um, uh, the plurality of the Godhead in the Old Testament. Another way is the uh, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh who shows up a number of different places. And in some places, like in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 13, you actually have a conversation between Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. Hmm, they're two different people. But in other places, the angel of Yahweh is referred to as the Lord and is given worship, for example, in Judges chapter 6, when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and uh, calls Gideon, you mighty man of valor, uh, God is appointing you to uh, deliver the nation from the, from the Midianites. And uh, Gideon is just shaking in his boots, and the first thing he wants to do is build an altar and worship the angel of the Lord. And he refers to the angel of the Lord as the Lord. And nowhere in scripture is anything allowed to be worshiped as God other than God. And the angel does not correct him. So, uh, it's very clear that the angel of the Lord is a different personality than the, than, than Yahweh, but is, has all of the attributes of Yahweh and is worshiped as Yahweh. So that's another indication of plurality. And then you also have places in uh, Isaiah, for example, where you have God speaking, Yahweh is speaking, he says, I will send my spirit, my spirit will be upon my servant. Now, my, my servant is divine and the spirit is divine. So you have the Trinity. You have three persons mentioned in those verses to indicate a plurality of the Godhead. So it's very clear that... Um, that there's this indication in the Old Testament of a plurality in the Godhead, but it, by the first century A.D. there is such a reaction to the possibility of idolatry by the Pharisees that any hint of worshiping a plurality is, is frowned on. So Peter never, based on all of his training, all of his background, he never would have uh, wanted to to worship. Someone, another God other than God. And here he's talking about Jesus and he uses two names for God from the Old Testament and applies them to Jesus. And that tells us that something. It says that this, something has changed in the thinking of this orthodox, rigidly observant Jew named Peter. And that he clearly understands now that Jesus is fully God. And there's no question in his mind. Now, he recognized that uh, sometime earlier, for example, in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus says, Peter, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? He says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But he makes this very clear here by the terms that he is using in front of this Jewish audience. What surprises me is when the Sanhedrin finally arrest him, and take him and John or pick him up for questioning uh, in chapter 4, uh, they're not nearly as hostile to their claim that Jesus is God as they were to Jesus. I, I think that at this stage, uh, with all the numbers of people who are converting, believing in Jesus, that maybe there was a sense of hesitancy uh, among the Sanhedrin. We can't really prove that, but here's a really clear statements by Peter, Within the temple precincts, that assigning to Jesus titles of deity, and we don't see them hauled off for blasphemy, and they're not going to get them crucified within the next day. So there, there's something going on there. So he calls him, uh, first, first of all, he refers to Jesus here as the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. And this phrase is used numerous times in... Um, Isaiah to refer to Yahweh, to refer to God. 30 times Isaiah uses the phrase uh, Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel, to refer to God. He uses it in passages such as Isaiah 49, verse 7. Uh, Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. So this is what Yahweh says, the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah 45, 21, uh, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God beside me, a just God. There's that Sadak again, just. So this is a title here. This is the same title that shows up uh, that Peter uses here referring to God. A just God and a Savior, there is none uh, none beside me. And then, of course, Isaiah 53.11 uses the phrase righteous. It's the same word in Hebrew, just like it is in Greek. That word group can either be translated righteous or just. And so it's uh these terms are used numerous times in Isaiah, especially the Holy One, as a title for God. And so in verse 14, Peter says, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's, of course, referring to Barabbas. And you killed... The prince of life. Now, this is an interesting term for prince. It's the Greek word archegos. Now, that is a word that is related to the shorter noun arche, meaning beginning. Now, we saw arche on Sunday morning talking about Jesus, who is the head of the church, the, the beginning. And that it means there in that context, the one who began something, the one who initiated or caused the beginning of the church. And so this is a, a lengthening of that term. Archegos indicates uh, someone who is uh, the prince, uh, the leader, and so he is identified as the prince of life. Now, Colossians 1.18 that we studied on Sunday morning said that he is the beginning of, Or the originator. And then what did it say? It said, He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, that phrase, as we studied it Sunday, firstborn from the dead, is a reference to His resurrection. That Jesus is the first to conquer death and receive a resurrection body. And so, in that sense, He conquers death so that we can all conquer death. His victory over death becomes our victory over death. And that means he becomes the pioneer or the prince of life. He is the one who begins this new life. He's the first one to have that resurrection life. So <clears throat> when Peter refers to him here as the prince of life, he's m- making a s- similar claim to what Paul does in Colossians one eighteen, the beginning of, the firstborn of the dead. He is the one who is the uh, cause of this new life, the leader, the pioneer of this new life, this new resurrection, uh, resurrection life. So verse 15 we read, um, he, you killed the prince of life who God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And there we have a strict appeal to the fact that this isn't just something that we made up. It isn't just something that um, we came up with because we needed a little boost and we're going to start uh, 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 deceiving everybody with the fact that Jesus is alive. Everybody here knows the story. You can check it out. Those uh, uh, Roman guards, sorry, I lost my slide here. Those Roman guards that were guarding Jesus' tomb were still around. They could go ask them, what happened that morning. The Mary, all the Marys that showed up that resurrection Sunday morning, were all around. They could go ask them what happened. This was this was something that could be demonstrated and something that could be uh, proven in, empirically at that time. They they could go and talk to any number of people. They could talk to the other disciples who had. Witness the resurrected Christ. They could talk to the 500 that Jesus had appeared to up in Galilee. There were hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. And uh, in fact, there were a group that were probably still wandering around who had been raised from their grave at the time that Jesus was crucified on the cross. Only Matthew tells about this that the graves were open and people came out of their grave doesn't indicate they were given resurrection bodies, but they are raised from the dead like Lazarus was, and they lived for... It doesn't say they went back in the grave. It wasn't like some zombie movie where they come out, and then when the sun goes down, they have to go back in the grave, or when the sun comes up, they have to go back in the grave. They were given new life, and they lived until they died again. And so all of these things were going on in Jerusalem at that time, and so there was... Uh, evidence available to everyone listening to Peter to know that what he was saying was the absolute, uh, absolute truth. Now in verse 16, uh, Peter goes on to say, and his name. Now we think of, of a name as merely a tag or a label. That's just what it's called. But in Jewish thought, a name said something about the essence or the character of that which it named. And the name of a person says something about the nature of the person. This is why so many people uh, in the scriptures have names that are changed or modified to represent something about, uh, about their character. Jesus was named Yeshua because he was to be the savior of his people. Yeshua comes from the uh, Hebrew verb Yasha, meaning to save or deliver. So his name said something about who he who he is. And so when you did something in someone's name, that meant you were representing all that that person is uh, and doing it on the basis of that person's character and all and that person's reputation. And so in verse 16, Peter says, "And his name, through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Okay, who's exercising the faith here? Let me think about this verse a little bit. It's structured a little strange in, the, in the, uh, the way the New King James has translated this. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Okay, who's exercising the faith that made this man strong? Is it the lame man? No. The lame man didn't expect anything. You look back and reread those first ten verses, and we see that he, he saw Peter and John coming up, and he thought, well, this is a good mark, so I'm going to get some dollars from them. And um, they came up, and he begins to ask them for money. And verse 4 says, Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. Give us your attention. And so when he looked at them, then Peter said, uh, I don't have any money. King James says it more poetically, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then Peter reaches down and grabs him by the right hand and pulls him up. This guy is not sitting there going, oh yeah, I'm going to trust in Jesus and I believe that this is true and so I'm going to stand up on the basis of that faith. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't respond to what Peter said. Peter said, rise up and walk. The guy does not rise up and walk of his own volition. He's not responding in faith on the basis of what Peter said. It is Peter who reaches down and grabs his hand and pulls him to his feet. So he's not expressing any faith at that point, and he's up and walking around. Then he believed, but not before he was healed. His faith is afterward. So whose faith is it that gets this guy up off his feet, Peter and John. It's their faith, they're trusting in the promise and the instructions that Jesus gave them in terms of their apostolic role and function to heal this individual. So they say, in his name, because that's what Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, His name through faith, that is through the apostle, through John and Peter's faith in Christ's name has made this man strong whom you see and know. You know this. You've known this guy for 40 years. He's never walked a day in his life. He was born this way. This isn't just some uh, leg lengthening uh, piece of chicanery that takes place down at some tent revival. This is a genuine miracle that has occurred because... You all know that he's never, ever walked. And look at him. He's running around here uh, like a deer on steroids. Yes, the faith that comes through him has given him this, him, the faith that comes through him, that is through Christ, that first him is faith in Christ, the faith that Peter and John had in Christ. That faith has given him, the lame man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he recognizes that it is their faith, but it is Jesus that is the instrumental power that has enabled this man to, to walk. Now he says in verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. Isn't that interesting? He just absolved them. Peter absolves them of all responsibility. You did this out of ignorance. Now, this is really interesting because as he's appealing to them within the temple, within the, the ritual of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement covers all unintentional sin. The, uh, the, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement did not cover intentional sin. And so what, what Peter says here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that God understands that you really didn't understand what you were doing. You did it in ignorance. That means that this sacrifice can cover the sin of those who crucified the Messiah. And he says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers also. Now, if you go back and you read the gospel accounts, you may not recognize that they did it in ignorance. But think about 2 Corinthians four four, where Paul tells us that Satan go, is the as the God of this age is blinding the minds of the unsaved. Is that there is a cloud over their thinking? They are self deceived and ignorant of the truth, and so there is a sense in which they're not. Responsible, It's not an intentional sin because they really didn't have a clue what they were doing. They should have, maybe. But Peter says, you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he, meaning God the Father, has thus fulfilled. Now in verse 18, Peter takes them again back to the Old Testament and says again and again the Old Testament or their scriptures, because that's all they had, the scriptures foretold that the Messiah would suffer. Now, the Old Testament has some prophecies about the Messiah that he's going to reign over a glorious future kingdom. Other prophecies focused on the fact that the Messiah would suffer. What happens under the oppression of Rome is that the leaders are ignoring half those prophecies. And Jesus, there were over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus at the first coming, over 300. And many of those have to do with his suffering. And I've just put 10 of these up here on this slide, that he would be hated unjustly, Isaiah 49, 7, fulfilled in John fifteen twenty four to 25. He would be rejected by the ruler, Psalm one hundred and eighteen, twenty two. They reject the chief cornerstone. Uh, prophecy fulfilled in Matthew twenty one forty-two and John seven forty eight. That he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm forty-one nine. This is cited also in Acts one when we studied that by Peter, but it's it's fulfilled in Matthew twenty-six twenty one through twenty five. And 47 through 50, he's betrayed by Judas, one of the disciples. And also it's uh, indicated in John 13, 18 through 19. So he's betrayed by a friend. He's sold for 30 pieces of silver. Ju- Judas' price for betraying Jesus was 30 pieces of silver, predicted in Zechariah eleven twelve, 12, and fulfilled in Matthew 26, verse 15. He was struck on the cheek, Micah 4, 14. Fulfilled Matthew 27, 30. He would be spit on, Isaiah 50, verse 6. And that was fulfilled, Matthew 26, 67, and Matthew 27, 30. 26, 67, and 27, 30. He would be mocked, Psalm 22, 8 through 9. Fulfilled in Matthew 26, 67, and 68. Beaten, Isaiah 50, verse 6. Fulfilled in Matthew 26, 67. That he would be... Uh, resurrected, Psalm 1610, fulfilled, uh, stated as fulfilled, in Acts 231, and crucified, uh, got those in reverse order, crucified, Psalm 22, 16, Luke 23, Suffering prophecies, whole chapters, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and then Daniel 9, 26 talks about the Messiah being cut off, a word of, of violence. And so all of these passages and many, many more, talked about the suffering of the Messiah. And and uh, there, were the, there were at least 40 or 50 prophecies that were related to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. So this just didn't happen. It wasn't that well, one or two things happened that just are similar. There is precise fulfillment of numerous prophecies Uh, in uh, jesus and so then we come to the challenge verse 19 repent and be converted now that's just good old king james english and that has picked up a lot of uh, both words repent and conversion have picked up a lot of theological baggage and religious baggage because of their overuse over the last Uh, 400 years since the King James Version was translated, and there's a lot of things misunderstood there and too much to cover in the negative one minute I have left. So we will come back and go through this next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this, to be again reminded of how you prepared Israel for the coming of the Messiah by giving them all of these prophecies all of these pictures, all of these precise statements about uh, his death, his suffering, and so that they could recognize him when he came, and to realize that there were uh, so many who did not and who rejected him uh, for the, just out of their own negative volition, hostility towards you. And yet, Father, you, we see your grace here constantly extending the offer of salvation and the opportunity to accept and believe in Jesus that there would be salvation, and that the times of refreshing the kingdom would come. All that's required is to trust in Jesus, to believe in him, to rely upon him as the one and only Savior of mankind. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage our faith as we go over these this evidence, knowing that we have not misplaced our faith in Jesus, but that... Only faith in Jesus makes sense in light of all the evidence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.